Lincoln gave his second inaugural address in spring 1865, just weeks before an assassin's bullet would take his life. It was a short speech, took about five minutes. It's been said that no one's ever given a bad short speech. I don't think that's true, but Lincoln was the master of the concise, powerful spoken word. And in speaking of the war that was nearing its end, he said, both sides read the same Bible, pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not that we not be judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. And clearly he believed the South was wrong in the support of slavery. He alluded to Genesis 3 in the human fall when he said it's wrong to wring their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. However, he said God had not fully answered the prayers of either side. He goes on, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive to finish the work we're in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace. So he holds a, a delicate tension in his words when he said, with malice towards none, charity for all. He's setting up the country for restoration rather than retribution. At the same time, he has a clear sense of moral clarity, firmness in the right as God gives us to see it. But it's courageous moral clarity without arrogant moral superiority. And imagine if that balance were achieved more commonly today, if people would say and live, I'm going to do what I believe is right as God gives me the ability but I'm not going to demonize others in the process. And ideally, we can have strong convictions and yet enough confidence in God to act with humility in those convictions. There was a, a leading um, business leader in New York who wrote Lincoln a congratulatory letter about his speech. And Lincoln replied, he said, I believe it's not immediately popular. Men are not flattered by being shown that there has been a difference of purpose between the Almighty and them. So to deny it, he said, in this case, it's denied that there is a God governing the world. So Lincoln believed in the rightness of his cause, but he was not under the illusion that everything he did was right. He recognized evil for what it is, but he was able to see his own heart for what it was. It was a mixed bag. He knew God is not on Lincoln's side. God is God. And God, being God, always knows and does what's right, and God lifts up the humble and humiliates the proud, or sometimes lets them humiliate themselves. So you can be right about an issue, but if you're proud in your heart, then you're on the wrong side of God. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a prominent critic of the Soviet Union. His most famous work was the Gulag Archipelago. Gulag is the name of the forced labor camps in the Soviet Union, and an archipelago was an island chain. And so there was a, a time when he stood before our Senate and testified to what was going on in the Soviet Union in this vast Soviet islet chain of prisons. And he spent years there, along with a million others who died and suffered under that evil empire. And he saw up close the wickedness of totalitarian government that murdered tens of millions of its own citizens. And yet he wrote this, the dividing line between good and evil runs through every heart. So he was able to have moral clarity, this is evil without having moral superiority. So Lincoln recognized slavery for the evil that it is, and he gave his life to fight that evil, but he was able, 
like Solzhenitsyn, to turn the sword inward and to see his own heart. Utopian visions of the world are always going to lead to some kind of tyranny because the world will not be a utopia in this present age. Evil is going to be a part of it until the Lord returns. And those utopian visions are often held by people who lack humility. They act with a sense of moral superiority without moral clarity. Utopia means you change to agree with me. And when I have my way in the world, the world will be made right. But as we live in the world as it is, broken, seeking to do what we can to make it a better place as God gives us opportunity, we're to pay the most careful attention to our hearts. And James, a brother of Jesus, the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem, wrote about this tension, the tension of societal evil and evil in our own hearts. And the implication is never that we should stand passively by when evil people do evil things, but that God himself will ultimately bring justice on the earth. Things are not as they seem. Evil will not triumph. So as we move to do good, we trust God to bring final justice. And as we trust God to bring justice, that confidence in him is going to show up in practical ways, how we treat each other. And I've been fascinated as I've read history by the number of men and women who were determined to change human history on a grand scale, who had terrible relationships with the people who lived with them. I'm going to make the world a better place, and yet your house is a hell on earth. Reminds me of the Peanuts cartoon where Lucy told Linus that he couldn't be a doctor because he didn't love mankind. He said, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. <laughs> Karl Marx is one of the most blatant examples of this. He wanted to change the world for the common man, and he did change the world, but not for the better. And his personal life was so terrible. He was so angry and bitter. He couldn't keep a friend. Nobody could stand to be around him. One guy, got him angles, stood him, couldn't stand him, but stayed around him just because he wanted to fund his ideas. And he had to fund his ideas because Marx wouldn't get a job. And so Marx's own children suffered and died, probably from malnutrition, because he was going to change the world. So we have to act courageously and decisively with moral clarity as God gives it to us in Scripture, but not arrogantly or divisively in our relationships with each other. So we're going to break down our passage in James into two parts with this dual idea. You have to have confidence that God will bring justice. And then live with a kind of patient and trusting life together that reflect that confidence in God. Let me read James 5. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth is rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murder, murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. So for, for a variety of sound reasons, New Testament scholars believe that James is addressing non-Christians here. These are the wealthy landowners who were a class of people frequently singled out by Old Testament prophets for judgment, not because of their wealth, but for their injustice. And these are some of the same people who were oppressing the Christian community James wrote to. If you remember back in James 2, where he said, quit catering to these rich people. He said, aren't the ones that are, these are the same ones who are exploiting you. They're, one, they're the ones dragging you into court. They're the ones slandering the name of Jesus. And so these abusive people who James is referring to here in these first verses, they weren't even going to read James's letter. They weren't going to be sitting in church. So why is he addressing them? 
He's casting vision for the people who were going to be reading it. He said, you're impressed by these people who oppress you. Rather, you should be impressed with God, and you should actually be depressed for these people because misery is coming on them. They've brought great harm, even death, to people, and God won't let this stand. And being rich is not sinful in Scripture. It's not condemned. In the Bible, rich is sometimes a shorthand for ungodly rich, people who put their trust in wealth, especially those who use the power of wealth to mistreat others. And there are wealthy people among the followers of Jesus and members of the New Testament church. We addressed this at length last fall, so I won't belabor the point, because having wealth is not the point here. The point here is James is saying, you, ha- you have to look to God for justice. You can't be fooled by what you think you're seeing in the world. The wicked often seem to be prospering. The righteous can be seen suffering. And this church he was writing to was suffering. This can be confusing. But he is the Lord Almighty. He sees and acts in his time. And these ungodly rich who are living as, God, as, as if God does not exist, they will be judged by the God who does, in fact, exist. Don't be fooled by what you think you're seeing. And so now he turns to casting vision for, now here's how you act in light of this. Instead of being distracted, derailed by what you see going on in the world, God is in charge still. Now here's how you treat one another. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. So be patient then, meaning in light of what he just said, God hears, God will bring justice. You act with patience, confident, trusting endurance. And then as James loves to do, he gives some practical analogies. Be patient like a farmer, like the prophets, like Job. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So the theme here is seen in the frequency of the word patience and corresponding words like persevere. Hard to miss the personal application. If we're going to trust God, if we're going to trust that he is in charge, he is a judge, he will bring justice, we're going to demonstrate patience and endurance. The farmer waits actively, not passively. It's active patience. Right column living. The farmer plants, the farmer weeds. Left column, things beyond the farmer's control. He can't make it rain. He can't make the ground give up crops. The prophets actively spoke the truth of God to their nations and often to those in power, and they suffered for it. They actively did what was clearly right to do. They actively endured suffering. So Jeremiah says, I don't want to take this message to my people. God said, take it. No. And then he said, it burned in my heart. I couldn't help but speak it. And then he got well done from God and now endure suffering for having done the right thing. That's confusing. Job, the ultimate example of patient suffering. He was not perfect by any stretch. He struggled openly, honestly, with suffering, his suffering, and God's justice. In the end, he came round. So biblical endurance, patience, is not passively putting up with our circumstances. It's actively trusting God. We don't live a it-is-what-it-is kind of life. That's passive resignation, not active faith. What is often shouldn't be. And we're to be active in our patient endurance. So, for example, instead of sitting in your house, overwhelmed by how messed up the world is, Scroll rising crime, scroll polarization of people, scroll Chinese balloons, whatever. You pray, 
And then you go invest in a child at Youth Horizons or a teenager at Youth Horizons or a thousand other similar ways in which change actually happens in the world. Active trust, active patience. The farmer's active in his patience. The prophets spoke truth to evil and endured persecution. Job was honest with his struggle. In the end, he trusted God in his suffering. So we take appropriate action against what is wrong. We seek to bring change when we can. But in the midst of all this proactive endurance, our confidence is in God and not in ourselves. Sometimes it looks like evil is winning. But of utmost importance for James, and we'll get to why this is so important in a minute, we can't turn on each other as we act and wait and endure and suffer. As pressure gets turned up on us, we can't turn on each other. So right, right in the middle of all this, all this patient endurance, look at this, don't grumble against each other or you'll be judged. When we're under pressure, when stress is high, it's easy to take aim at one another. The old adage goes, when the cup is shaken, what's in the cup comes out. Often it comes out all over those right close to you. And James is casting vision throughout his book for transformed hearts revealed in how we respond to pressure and how we treat each other. He's a pastor concerned with unity in a church, never ever unity over truth, but unity in the truth. And when people go from acting on what they believe is moral clarity based on the revealed truth of God to acting out of moral superiority based on self-pride or self-woundedness, and they start warring against one another. And I mentioned how world changers often have terrible relationships with those right around them. It's because people who try to bring change, cultural change or justice, apart from active confidence in God, they often turn cannibalistic. These movements begin to consume one another. They fall apart because individuals inside them, they don't submit to the Spirit of God. They act out of arrogance, not humility. They don't have faith-inspired patience. And James didn't want this or didn't want this to continue to happen in the church. I can be faithful here. God is in charge, not evildoers, certainly not me. And so as you proactively trust God, even when being mistreated from the world around you, don't turn on each other. Remember those comments from those two great men, Lincoln, with malice towards none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. And Solzhenitsyn, the dividing line between good and evil runs straight through every heart. So to be clear, they both called evil what it was. And they separated truth from lies. There was no moral ambiguity, but they saw their own hearts with clarity. That's a great and difficult tension to keep. So James says, live with proactive, patient, trust in God. He will judge evil. Live in humble, non-judgmental relationships with each other in the church. Let's go to Psalms. Rodney mentioned that we we're going to look at this again and see the parallel between James and David. Psalm 37 was written by Israel's best king. He begins with, don't fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong because they're going to wither like the grass. So he's doing some cognitive reframing here. We envy or often at least puzzled when evil people seem to thrive. He said, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. And then that famous verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Verse 4 is famous and often misapplied. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give me what I really want. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you what your heart desires. And if you delight yourself in the Lord, what does your heart desire? It desires the Lord. So David had been selected by God to succeed Israel's first king, Saul. Saul had made his role as a king about himself, not his stewardship before God to serve people. 
And he, I said, pride makes you stupid. Pride makes you crazy. And he had literally lost his mind. He tried to kill David on several occasions. David, on the other hand, had the chance to kill Saul, refused to do it. And so this psalm is not just poetry. It's, it's, it's personal testimony. I've seen a wicked and ruthless man flourishing like green tree in native soil. But he soon passed away and was no more. I looked and couldn't find him. Now, David would eventually act with terrible duplicity himself. He would cause the death of a loyal and good man, steal his wife. This would cost him dearly, and that cost would echo through the ages. However, he turned to God in his shame. Unlike Saul, who became more arrogant and obstinate in his sin, the difference was not that Saul was sinful, David was sinless, but David humbled himself and Saul did not. And in this psalm, in the backstory for the psalm, there's this imperfect man who messed up terribly, struggling to live out moral clarity and personal humility. And that's always been a difficult balance to keep. Because if we, hold this, if we try to hold this tension, moral clarity, this is right, this is wrong, and then humility, no moral superiority, it's, that tension starts getting to us. So after a while, we, we can give up on the reality of, of knowing or living moral clarity. Because, you know, we just get beat down by the relentless pounding of society on biblical beliefs. Come on, you really believe that? And eventually we go, can I know that? Can I keep this side? And with that go, or we say, I'm going to hold on to this resolutely, and we become full of pride and hubris. It's really difficult. Uh, who loves tension? Raise your hand. Nobody loves tension. But we have to hold by God's grace this tension. God has revealed what's right. I can know it and live it courageously without becoming arrogant or combative. And we can do this even as the pressure on us increases because our confidence is in the righteous judge. We tend to think God's on our side, social issues, political positions, theological finer points, or even relational interpersonal perspective. That's not all wrong. It's good to believe there's an ultimate right or wrong on issues and that God does see them clearly because the commonly held view called relativism claims that all truth is relative, not absolute. You have your truth, I have mine. There is no ultimate right or wrong. That's what many people believe, at least hypothetically, because no one really can live that way. Because they say you have your truth, I have my truth, and then there's great moral outrage when you don't act in line with my truth. So my truth and your truth doesn't ever work interpersonally. So people who seek to bring change culturally, organizationally, relationally, they, apart from confidence in God, they'll inevitably turn on one another because my truth gets defined in narrow, narrow ways until there's only one person who can live in that universe, me. Moral superiority without moral clarity and personal humility turns into outrage towards anyone who dare disagrees with me. And there's no hope for relationship or unity without absolute truth God has spoken. And so you might say, well, Christians believe God has spoken in Scripture, and yet they don't get along, they don't agree. And I would say in the church, we do have intramural arguments, discussions. But when we begin with God is there and God has spoken as the foundation for our lives, it allows for some wonderful outcomes that aren't even possible without that beginning point. So here's one. We can be sacrificially proactive in pursuing moral good in the world. We can go be faithful because there is absolute truth. Some things are right and wrong, and these things are not fluid, not shifting. And even when it doesn't go well for us as we pursue good in the world, 
we are going to be faithful. We can patiently endure even when evil seems to rule the day. So we don't read the newspaper and lose hope. We don't become exasperated. God's already told us it's not going to be that good of a place now, this side of Christ's return. But as we read the news, we can pray, leave the things that are outside our control to God, and then enter the world with clarity, confident clarity, humble activity. So I can fret and rage about all that's wrong with the world, or I can go into the world, invest, do good, be faithful, knowing it doesn't depend on me. But what I do in faithfulness matters, regardless of whether I see immediate impact or not. Really important to keep those realities in our mind. And the second really good thing that can come out of this God is there and God has spoken is we don't seek to bring our truth to discussions and differences. We're not trying to get reality to conform to us. We're trying to conform to the reality as God has made it. So we come together seeking to know the truth as God's revealed it in Scripture. So even if we don't agree, we have some hope of moving towards each other rather than away from each other. Why? Well, because there's a standard we're moving towards. Even if I'm disagreeing on what the Bible says, there is a permanent external to me standard that we're both trying to conform to. In relativism, it's always going to be my wayism and your wayism. That's never going to work out relationally. But when God's truth is what we're seeking, even when we disagree, we're still not enemies. We're co-seekers of the truth of God, and we know there is a truth to be found, and we want to be on the right side of it. So, when we disagree on what is the truth of God regarding some complex issue, in the end, we can agree on the truth of God that's not complex at all. John, in his letters we'll get to this year, gives us some non-complex truth. Difficult to do, not hard to understand. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Surely laying down our lives would at very least include maybe letting people fail and forgiving them. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he's seen cannot love God who he's not seen. I love you, God. Yeah, but he's right there. And you don't love him. She's right there. So there's a chance for continued unity when we start with God is there and God has spoken. My closest friend of 44 years, Ernest and I, we, can't, we couldn't be any different in our backgrounds. It's not even possible. Came from inner city, black family, no father. I come from middle class, white father and mother in the home. And when we first became friends, we used to do battle royale. We would just go at each other. And I'm not exaggerating. I mean, it would get loud. We were both very passionate. I've told the story before, but one time we were so intent on convincing each other of our, our position, we looked over and Christy was crying because, wow, this is intense. And we said, okay, let's stop doing that. Just don't do it like that. And, and, but see, you say, well, there's no way that relationship can survive. It could because it wasn't him fighting for my way isn't me for my way. We were trying to figure out what is the truth of God here, and we move together. We don't fight anymore. There's a hope. But when it's your truth and my truth, truth, there is no hope for you. So to believe you have the moral high ground or theological high ground on an issue does not exempt you from the commands to love one another. So moral clarity always has to be linked with godly humility. And that combination unifies and mobilizes the church which is what James is after. We hold the truth because God has spoken. So we have, we have the possibility of moral clarity. We hold the truth in humility because it's God who has spoken. 
And James was laser-focused on faith expressed in relationship because pride and dissension immobilizes the church. Unity and humility mobilizes the church. The long-running TV series MASH, MASH is an acronym for Mobile Army Surgical Hospital, was about a Korean War medical unit. And it was, in comedy form, it presented what's true in reality. A loss of mission leads to a loss of unity. A loss of unity leads to a loss of mission. So in the show, when there's no war casualties to attend to, which is the mission of this unit, the medical personnel get into all kinds of silliness. They just start acting stupid. Their differences are magnified. Then when they get engaged with the mission, when casualties roll in, they start tending to the wounded. Guess what? They start working in harmony. They don't even, the person they didn't like before, the silliness goes away. The mission begins to take prominence. And James is the pastor who wants the church to flourish in the kingdom. And this requires a commitment to truth and humility. Both of those are foundational for community. The gospel impacting relationships in the church and mission, the gospel impacting the world outside the church. Look again as we concluded how James brought together these two realities of God and the implications. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. You're not the judge. Stop. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So what do you see here? You see God is just, judge, he will bring justice. You're not the judge. God is full of mercy and compassion. He keeps extending grace to you. So we don't grumble against each other. And that word grumble is an interesting word. It, ver- it, it describes the verbalization of suffering. It describes the verbalization of persecution or stress. The people grumbled or groaned in slavery in Egypt. Paul wrote in Corinthians about life now, this side of the resurrection. He said, meanwhile, we groan. It's that same word. Under the pressure the church was experiencing, persecution, opposition, they were turning in their stress from the outside against one another. They were groaning, grumbling against one another. You know how often that happens in our lives. And this is doubly tragic because they needed one another to endure the stress coming at them from the outside And the dissension caused by this grumbling against each other, judging one another, was negatively impacting their ability to live missionally in the world. So it was a a double negative. So we have to live with moral clarity, not moral superiority. We're proactive in doing good and patient in trusting the justice of God. And we have to keep turning towards each other, not against each other, especially in the face of trials and testing. This, This was the Lord's plan to change the world. I've I've spoken, live with clarity, but it was me who spoke. So live with humility. And whenever that balance is kept, when it's tried, it works really well. And I would say, contrary to popular opinion or news reports, it's it's being tried quite often in the church. What makes the news is when it doesn't happen. What doesn't make the news is the other 99.9% of the time when it is happening. So I thought about how do, what's my main application for River this morning? So you ready for it? Here it is. <laughs> and, and this is all sincerity. This is what I believe God wants me to say to you is well done. And in the name of Jesus, carry on. That's my main application. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that in your goodness and your power and your wisdom, you, have, you spoke to people 
who wrote down your word, and then you took these obscure people we don't know, these scribes who told away by candlelight and copied your word, preserved it. And then you raised up scholars and people who know languages and culture who could translate it, and you superintended that whole process to preserve your word for us here in Wichita, Kansas. It's amazing. We're grateful. The truth of your word is self-evident. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you that we can have clarity. And as we struggle to understand how to apply it sometimes, thank you for the clarity that we're to love one another, to move towards each other and not away from each other. And thank you how you've put us in a church that does that imperfectly but does it well. And we give you all the, the credit for that reality. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great Sunday.